Welcome, and thank you for tuning into the Monroe College True Crime Blind Justice Podcast. The crisis of crime and mental health in our communities impacts all of us. Hear from experts on the front lines in law enforcement, law, and human services about the criminal justice and human response to crime, substance abuse, and mental illness. Hello, listeners. My name is Faye Roberts-Paul, and I am glad to be with you once again for Episode 9 of the Monroe College School of Criminal and Social Justice podcast, Blind Justice. Today's show is the devastating violence in our jails and prisons keeping corrections officers and inmates safe. In jails and prisons around the country, violence has increased, causing the safety of officers and inmates to be at risk. According to Toth, Cruz and Burton, 2008, race-based gangs like the Aryan Brotherhood, the Aryan Circle, the Bloods, the Crips, and the Mexican Mafia continue to be active in American prisons and jails. The well-being of newly incarcerated people may mean joining a gang as a way to survive the sentence. Gangs are organized and mainly disciplined and perceived as a protective consortium. The National Gang Intelligence Center estimates that there are approximately 230,000 gang members in state and federal prisons. Today, we will discuss with two esteemed guests what can be done to control and reduce the level of gang-related violence in our correctional facilities, how are weapons made in these facilities, and what plans and options exist for keeping inmates and the correctional staff safe from physical and sexual assaults. So I'm going to start with introducing you to Alan Dodson, Professor Alan Dodson is a criminal and social justice professional. He's been teaching criminal justice at Monroe College for nearly 20 years. He has extensive experience in law enforcement that spans 40 years and retired just two years ago. His law enforcement experience encompasses the New York City Police Department as a police officer, the U.S. Department of Probation and Parole as a probation parole officer, the New York City Board of Corrections at Rikers Island as an investigator, the New York City Division for Youth as a director, and the Center for Alternatives to Incarceration as a director. His time with the New York City Board of Corrections, where he served 10 years, entailed investigating homicides, suicides, escapes, and erroneous discharges. Professor Dodson's style of teaching is well regarded by his students. He is a graduate of Binghamton University and of John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Welcome, Professor Alan Dodson. Thank you very much for that welcoming. Wilfredo Perez, Jr. Wilfredo Perez, Willie, as we know him, is a native and lifetime New Yorker born and raised in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. In 1997, Willie began his career with the New York State Department of Correctional Services as a correction officer. 
His first assignment after leaving the academy was at the historic Sing Sing Correctional Facility, and he has served there with dedication and distinction for 25 and a half years. During his time at Sing Sing, he has been promoted through the ranks and now holds the position of captain and is responsible for the safe and efficient operations of the facility. Captain Perez has also served as a union vice president of the Southern Region of New York State Correctional Officers and Police Benevolent Association and represented the members for over nine years. During his full-time career, Captain Perez returned to college and earned a Master of Science in Criminal Justice. In 2020, Captain Perez joined Monroe College as an adjunct professor with the School of Criminal and Social Justice, and he is a charismatic and dependable instructor. So thank you both for joining us. And I want to start, my first question will be, why is physical safety in jails and prisons so important? And either of you, both of you, please feel free to answer the question. The physical safety issue in our jails and prisons throughout the United States have been around for many, many years. Inmates enter our facilities scared to death. And for some reason, they got the idea that if they show some type of weakness, they will be harassed and things of that sort. So they carry themselves in a way to intimidate others and get the possibility of joining a gang so that you can have an association and protection and things of that sort. So with respect to the physical safety in our jails, it does exist. There are measures being taken by the correction administrators throughout the years with emphasis on my own personal experience, watching the administrators inside the jail ensure to the best of their ability that everyone inside that jail and or prison are safe. We have a logo in the field of corrections. We call it CCC, which stands for we have responsibility for every person in that jail to provide care. That means make sure that inmates eat and are taking care of their health. We have to make sure they remain in custody as pursuant to the order of a judge, ordering that this man or woman be incarcerated. So we have care, custody, and then the last one is control. We must control that jail, not the inmates. So Captain Perez, if you could speak on the primary causes and sources of violence in correctional facilities. Sure. So several reasons that um violence in the facilities exist. Um, and I'll just walk you guys through a few of them. So one of the primary causes is overcrowding. So when you have aggressive individuals with minimum self-control living in tight spaces, the overcrowding um, leads to violence or, or may perpetrate instances where violence will, will um, exist. You also have gangs. So you have affiliations, rivalries, disputes, amongst gangs and gang members um, is also a primary cause of violence. Then you have your racial issues, whether it's racial ethnicities um, or different groups dividing themselves amongst racial lines leads also to um, violence in the facilities. And then um, unfortunately in in a correctional um, setting, you have a predator and prey 
mentality which exists. Not every single um, incarcerated individual is an individual that's there for a heinous or harsh crime. Um, you have many individuals that are there for minor crimes. However, the individuals that are there for more heinous crimes tend to be more predatory, taking advantage of those individuals who um, are not. Then, of course, you have the prison architecture or design, a lot of hidden areas, a lot of blind spots, a lot of areas don't have video coverage or staff available to cover those areas. And lastly, our staffing issues. So whether it's inexperienced staff, lack of equipment, lack of training, or what we're suffering now, staff shortages. With staff shortages, no one keeping a visual eye on the situations or the areas uh, will also lead to violence as well. And those are our primary causes of violence within the correctional facilities. Can I just interject for a moment? Sure. Uh, staff shortage is a major problem in the jails and prisons throughout the United States. And it has an adverse impact on everyone in this jail environment. Because when people don't feel safe, they tend to, to begin to arm themselves. When I was in Rikers Island, inmates feared for their safety because they were not able to make a homemade weapon. We call it a shank. And as such, they were being subjected to harassment, threats, fear, intimidation. So the issue surrounding safety and the lack of staff is not an adequate response to this issue. We need to make sure that the people in power, the mayors, the uh, superintendents of the jails or the prisons, rather, are aware of the fact that there's a staffing issue which may not allow the administrators of the facilities to properly protect the members, the staff, and the civilians inside of a jail or prison. Captain Perez actually spoke of prey and predator, and we've heard your response to um, the question of the primary causes. Do you want to elaborate on the overall environment in correctional facilities encouraging the use of physical violence as a self-defense mechanism for some inmates? So I, I think... Uh, some inmates may find themselves joining a gang for protection. Absolutely, Faye. So um, some of the reasons that we discussed why primary causes of the violence in the facility also lead to those environments. So the environmental factors within the correctional facilities will always encourage um, the use of physical violence. And there's so many reasons why. But when we go back to some of the reasons of the primary causes, so if an individual is going to want to join a gang, there's a violent method of joining. You get what they call jumped in or, or you have to cause a violence towards another person in order to get initiated. So you may have to cut someone. You may have to stab someone. You're going to have to do some underlying act of violence in order to be considered a member of a gang if you're going to get in, um, join one of these um, these gangs. Um, you also have, and, and going back to the predator, the whole predator and prey, as we discussed earlier, you have individuals that will take advantage of that. You have inmates that are, um, the environment um, leads to violence due to you may owe money. You may have drug habits. So there are so many reasons why physical violence may occur. And it seems these days um, the, the violence in the facilities is increasing. Professor Dodson, can you speak to the overall environment? Because I hear your concern and your answer that if the facility was better staffed and to a certain extent better organized, 
than the amount of violence that is through gangs that's experienced would be less. Do you want to speak on that? Yes, the issues surrounding, again, the safety and the level of violence inside of a jail or a prison is clearly associated with staffing issues that hinders an officer's ability to do his or her job efficiently because they don't have enough staff. I can recall the days whereby there were more levels of violence inside the jails whereby inmates will take over a pod or a dormitory inside the facility because they had that type of power because there was only one correctional officer and 50 inmates inside of that dormitory. That's a safety issue, an issue involving the lack of supervision where inmates attack each other, the inmates assault staff, correctional officers. It could be an issue where civilians who work in areas where inmates are constantly in there, like the mental health unit, you, you must make sure that they are protected because of their mental health state, their physical disabilities, and inmates will prey on them, like Captain Perez mentioned recently. Safety is very important. The one thing I would like to add, if I may, is when I was on this job, the climate inside these jails or prisons are governed by the warden of that facility. And I remember one particular warden, and I will never forget him. He was like five feet tall, very mean. But his meanness and toughness was used as a tool to persuade inmates that they had to do what they're supposed to do or face repercussion. On the other side, I've known wardens who were a little lackadaisical. You know, they they referred to their underlings, sergeants and lieutenants or whatever, to do the job. But those wardens were very had a very firm, rigid way of addressing inmates seemed to reduce the level of violence inside the jails. So, Captain Perez, given your recent experience, talk to us about the fear that may be felt on both sides by a new inmate or a CO. Because you're in a controlled or locked down environment and there are more people within the facility than there are of you. So speaking to what Professor Dodson has just said, it's got to be about control. How have you managed your facility? Well, um, managing the facility right now with the staffing issues, as Mr. Dodson um, continues to um, discuss, it's becoming, it is becoming difficult. The other concern, which is just recent, is the change in the Holt Law and the uh, inability to confine um, incarcerated individuals who violate the regulations for extended period of time or limited periods of time. So that is very new. We're experiencing this maybe in the last eight months to a year with the changes of law. So when the current changes of law, an incarcerated individual that violates department standards of, of behavior, we cannot confine them in the manner in which uh, we used to confine them in the years past, as Mr. Dotson referred to. So now, because an incarcerated individual cannot be confined, he must be allowed to stay within population. There is no true penalty right now where, or, or hindrance or, or deterrent rather, that's the most proper word, a deterrent to stop a lot of these individuals that are perpetrating violence on one another. 
So I have to ask along those lines, if your behavior has caused your incarceration and you're a member of a gang, the deterrence as part of your sentencing doesn't stop your behavior? The sentencing you would, in time, you have a, a person becomes institutionalized. So in time, the system, you becoming dependent on the system, understanding that your behavior modification must take place. Inmates who have been incarcerated for longer periods of time tend to be less violent, tend to be more cooperative with the system. But younger kids coming in, new um, incarcerated individuals, they have not learned um, those lessons yet, or the system has not had an opportunity to um, curve their behavior initially. So does it make it harder for you to restrict the inmate because of the new laws? Oh, yes, yeah, so absolutely. The, the new law, if the instant offense is not egregious enough for us to um, warrant us um, confining him right away, then we cannot confine him. And, and a lot of these instances, it'll take an investigation to determine who the perpetrator was that you know assaulted another individual. But if we, under the new standards, an investigation would only lead to us um, giving him a misbehavior report in which he will be um, sanctioned privileges, but it will not be an immediate confinement. In the past, if the investigation led to this individual actually committing the offense, we were able to confine him, even if it was later on. It's something right now we're very limited. You have 17 hours now to conduct your investigation and confine the individual. If the individual is confined, you have an initial five days to either complete the hearing. If the individual requests assistance or legal representation, then you get 15 days um, in order to complete a hearing to impose confinement sanctions if that's what you're going to impose. So we have um, very, very stringent limitations and regulations in which we can confine an individual. So what is happening, what the system is seeing now is that the violence is on the rise. Individuals are taking advantage of other options, whether they're claiming that they have OMH uh, um, issues or, or mental health issues and claiming, requesting to be put into um, OMH observation or mental health observation. A lot of them requesting protective custody. A lot of them don't want protective custody, so they'll they'll try to get the administration to put them in involuntary protective custody. Some of them are, um, are faking injuries just to go into the infirmary because the infirmary is isolated from population. So we're seeing any number of scenarios and whereby the incarcerated population is utilizing other means in order to get out of population because of the fear factor and their inabilities to defend themselves. So as part of that, can you tell us how inmates make weapons in correctional facilities? Uh, yes, there's a host of ways because it's a massive institution. And one of the ways that I recall very explicitly in one of the facilities that I was assigned to in an effort to keep the, the inmates cool, that's before we had air conditioners. It goes way back in the 80s. And we had fans, those big fans. And what an inmate would do is when the fan was, was shut off, they would go over and break the, uh, the, the uh, narrow metal pieces, scrape it on the ground, scrape it to where it has a really, really sharp point. And that became what we call their shank. 
that became their weapon that they used, along with other types of weapons, to protect themselves. So inmates were afraid, civilians were afraid that the medical staff were, who came into the housing area to treat the uh, inmates who were sick or what have you. So it was a tough call to, to really say that we are 100% safe when the fact of the matter is, unfortunately, inmates make homemade weapons. People smuggle in weapons during the visit. Maybe staff smuggles in for the inmates. For whatever reason, whatever motive, I'm not going to speculate. But during my time there, there was a host of ways that uh, inmates would get a weapon. The biggest one is the barbershop. By law, as Captain Perez referred to, inmates have certain rights. And one of the rights is we have to give them a razor so that they may shave themselves and maintain their hygiene. They're supposed to turn it in at the end of usage. The reality is many inmates found a way to keep an extra one, or some inmates never shave, so they pass the, the, the razor over to their friends and they use it as a weapon. They melt the razor and add a little piece of hard plastic like a toothbrush to the end of it, and they'll use that as a weapon. Inmates have nothing else to do but figure out ways how to hurt others, how to try to escape, and things of that sort. So weapons come in from a host of ways. I just wanted to ask Captain Perez his experience of what his illegal weapons that he has found or that a visitor has tried to pass through. Oh, absolutely, Faye. So one thing we have to really understand is that, unfortunately, weapons are part of a prison life, and, and there is no true way to stop the manufacturing of weapons or even the bringing in of weapons. Um, it is a problem that um, I've experienced in my 26 years um, in the business, especially improvised weapons. As Mr. Dotson alluded to, you have there's several different categories. So you have what we call shivs or shank. That's a prison term. A shiv or shank will be a stab, any type of stabbing type weapon. Incarcerated individuals are very, very good at making these, these weapons. They can take anything as simple as a toothbrush. A toothbrush is a hard plastic. They'll take a lighter. They heat up the plastic and then they'll forge or form it into a stabbing type point or weapon. Concrete floors are rough in surface. They'll take something plastic like the toothbrush and continue to file it on the floor using the concrete as a file. The bristles of a toothbrush are made of a plastic that when you heat it lightly, and you compress it together in a V-shaped form, and then you file it on an edge, you can turn the bristles of a toothbrush into a razor blade because it's plastic. They'll take the metal strip of a shaving razor, a regular big shaving razor. They'll break the guard off. They'll remove the razor from there put a piece of cardboard in between, put another razor, and they'll make a double-bladed razor so that when you get cut, you have two cuts and a piece of flesh in between, making it difficult for that wound to be stitched or closed. You have garrotes or choking-type instruments. They'll use anything from a dental floss, electrical cord, rope, string, take pieces of the sheet. They'll take a sheet that they cover themselves with and they'll cut it into strips, and these strips of material, they'll twine it together, they'll make a rope out of it, 
and they'll use that as a what we call a garot or garut, um, G-A-R-R-O-T-E, um, which is a choking type of um, instrument. What is your most recent experience of someone using a weapon? You know, unfortunately now, Faye, one of the biggest problems that we're actually having is manufactured weapons. So while we do understand and know that inmates are uh, making weapons and have the capability of making weapons, unfortunately, the biggest weapons that we're finding inside the facility are manufactured ceramic razor blades. These razor blades are very small. They are not able to be detected by metal detectors because they're ceramic in material. Um, and they're hidden in any number of things. They can be hidden in clothing. They can be hidden in food products. They could be hidden um, in so many different ways. It is uh, one of the manufactured weapons of choice because it eludes all of our detection capabilities. The only way to find a ceramic razor blade is by increasing path risking. But when you're limited and short of staff, as we discussed earlier, that's one of the problems we run into. Shortness, I need, in order to path risk, I need a physical body to touch another body. If I don't have a body to do that, more weapons are getting pushed through. And one of these weapons, which is the ceramic razor blade, is truly one of the weapons of choice right now, which we're finding being utilized more and more. So, Professor Dodson, could you speak candidly of instances where correctional professionals have initiated the use of physical violence? Based on what you both have said, it seems to me with the greater body being the inmates and the smaller body being those that should be in control, have you experienced physical violence without justification? How should that correctional officer be made accountable to promote a sense of trust within the correctional facility? I'm sorry, it's not an easy question. No, and I, I applaud you for raising it because it's a real issue. We keep blaming others for bringing contraband weapons when the fact of the matter is, Faye, is that there's been a rise since I joined that job as an officer whereby staff is actually bringing in contraband to the facility to inmates. In addition to that, we have visitors who come to visit their loved ones' contraband. So, yes, there are times where officers poorly use their discretion or persuaded or threatened or promised or whatever to bring in contraband for inmates. But what about unjustified physical violence to try and control a situation? Yes, there are and have been, probably will continue to be instances where an officer abuses his or her authority as an officer and strikes an inmate or a, another person, if you will, uh, for whatever purpose, right? And at the end of the day, that behavior could result in an inmate being killed. So there are staff members. I don't want to limit it to officers because I've seen staff in terms of the uh, the janitor inside the, the prison, the uh, the mail room inside of a prison where mail comes into inmates and officers give the inmate the envelope knowing that there's cocaine being brought in to the facility, which is another no-no, if you will. But in terms of actually watching officers knowingly and intentionally Bringing in weapons and contraband is a problem in our correctional system. So, Captain Perez, can you talk about physical violence without justification? 
Oh, absolutely, Faye. And it's one of the hardest things that um, um, we have to do, especially as managers and, and captains in a facility, um, when, when I do get a report that force was used unjustly. First and foremost, my officers are, are charged with the color of law to act in good faith with reasonable care and probable cause. Not all force, and I have to make sure we know that not all force used by my officers against um, incarcerated individuals violates their rights or the Constitution. Now, in order to determine, Faye, whether or not a use of force was just or not just, I have to first decide whether or not the force was necessary, applied in good faith, and whether it was used to restore order um, or gain lawful compliance. Or was the force malicious and sadistic for the purpose of causing harm? I have to make a determination whether or not that individual officer acted justly or whether he was being malicious. Five steps that we take to try to determine that would be the extent of the injury of the individual, the need for the application of force, the relationship between the need of the force and the force that was actually applied, was the escalation utilized, the extent of the threat to the safety and security of the staff and the incarcerated individual as perceived by a reasonable person. Those five steps are usually the five steps that I will take to determine whether or not a force that was used was just or not just. In the event that we determine that it is not just, and it does happen, Faye, it is something that is something we have to deal with. It is real. People are emotionally charged. They are human. And a lot of individuals do not know how to control themselves in situations in which um, um, when force becomes necessary. And it may not always be a situation where it was malicious or intentional on onset. One of the things that we see quite often is a, a staff member may be assaulted. The situation is now under control. And now this staff member sees he has an upper hand. He loses control of himself, and now he wants to get that extra hidden, the extra kicking, the extra punching. At that point, he is still in violation because once that incarcerated individual was under control, the situation should have ended. Have you ever been attacked? I have. I have. Um, and I have quite a few injuries over the time of my, of my career, yes. Two injuries that today I still have inside my inner lip. I have a scar very early on in my career over a shower. I did not allow an incarcerated individual to take a shower because it wasn't his turn. Uh, we were giving showers to the odd numbers as opposed to even numbers that day. And this individual wanted to take a shower. He ends up punching me, put my whole lower, my whole lower lit, a teeth right into my lip. So I have to this day a permanent scar inside of my mouth uh, from where my teeth were actually lodged in between my in between my uh, my lips. I also have a metal plate in my hand. I broke my hand early on in my career also from being assaulted by an incarcerated individual. So these injuries are real. These injuries are long lasting. They build character, I guess, you know, they definitely teach you a lesson in the business. But more importantly, when, as you move up in the ranks, one of the things that can use these injuries and these situations, when I'm using my five reasons to justify force because I have been a victim of assault or I have been assaulted. I could understand, you know, at what point something became excessive as opposed to not. At what point was it malicious as opposed to just over emotional reaction? 
However, under the regulations, if it's an emotional reaction, Faye, and the officer is in violation, I have to recommend investigation or further investigation, allow the investigator or OSI to determine whether or not they believe that the act was egregious enough for discipline or whether or not they believe a verbal or formal counseling will satisfy the situation. Of course, that's going to lead back to those five steps, the extent of injury, the escalation, so on and so forth. But on my end, unfortunately, if the act is unjust, whether emotionally based or malicious based, I must recommend that to further investigation and allow the investigatory unit to make a determination on whether they're going to recommend discipline or not. So I'm going to ask both of you this question, and neither of you can go first. And because we know that there are race-based gangs in prison facilities, how are you able to manage the conflict between the two? Professor Dodson? Sure. In Rikers Island, back in the day, we have a classification system. Once we classify inmates in certain categories, in terms of being a member of a gang or whatever the case may be, we monitor them very carefully to try to keep them separated from one another. We alter the days that they go into the yard versus the other other group of uh, uh, inmates in an attempt to just keep them apart and um, let everyone you know enjoy their days, especially in the yard. Going into the yard is a very dangerous place in the jail, in the world of jails and prisons, because inmates are not handcuffed and shackled. They are just allowed to go in there, search before they go out, search before they come back into the building. But the reality is we can't really stop them from bringing in weapons and shanks. So we used to have meetings with the inmates. This is way back where it wasn't as bad as it is now, where we would tell a particular group of people who we knew were gang members, guys, listen, do us a favor, right? Do all of us a favor. No criminal activity, no misbehavior, no stabbing, no raping people, none of that behavior. And then we incentivize it. How do we incentivize it? Easy. We will tell them, okay, there's a big boxing match coming on on Saturday night. If you guys can behave, we'll ask the warden or the warden will tell the inmates, we have a special program for you guys if you can behave yourself. And if it goes well, maybe we'll do this on a regular basis just to keep the harmony inside of the jails, especially in the summertime when it is 80, 90 degrees inside these cells and the fans that we use to try to keep cool are just not enough and the inmates are getting fidgety. So you can work with different gang members. It's not always the way it's seen on TV. The bloods hate the chip, the lips, the chips, the flips. Sometimes it's instances where the gang members get together and say, you know what, they're right. Let's, let's keep everything cool and calm and let's enjoy whatever they're giving us. So, Captain Perez, how do you find that strategy to work between the gangs? Well, one thing we can say is, unfortunately, gangs and illicit grouping um, is going to forever be part of a prison um, setting, mainly because it's a natural response where individuals that believe they must group to compete, to thrive, and to survive. That is something that they many of these individuals naturally believe that. Dealing with gangs, so one of the biggest things we do is we identify and transfer main gang leaders. If we're able to identify a major gang leader, um, and we know that that gang leader has such a level of control 
over the um, incarcerated population, then we will transfer him out of that facility to another facility where he doesn't have as much uh, influence over the population. Uh, we also have um, units that identify uh, lower level members because gangs are made up of several levels and ranks within their respective gangs. We also have tracking and sharing info with other law enforcement agencies, whereby as individuals move from system to system to system, whether it's county to state to feds, we share that information so that we know well, not only what we're dealing with, but how was that individual behaving in his previous setting? We also have units that all they do all day is collect evidence and documents so that we can document the gang activity and if possible, file gang charges or internal charges where he can lose privileges. The gang setting is so powerful today, Faye, that these individuals can control an outside world monetarily, right. product, illicit drugs, prostitution, you name it, they can control it from inside of a six by three cell by use of an illegally smuggled cell phone. It is very dangerous. The gangs today are using internet. They can communicate. They have visitors that come in just to carry messages back and forth. They are very sophisticated. The days of us believing that incarcerated individuals are non-sophisticated individuals or non-educated. They're non-educated or sophisticated in the normal collegiate level. But in an illicit world, in a criminal world, they understand that world and they are the masters of that world. Yeah, it's still an example of leadership. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, one of the ways we try to limit gang activity. So there's prevention, intervention, and suppression. So one of the ways prevention, you give opportunities. Many of these individuals, because of their upbringings and where they come from, do lack a lot of skills. So one of the things that the prison can provide for them is opportunity for education, for training, for employment, vocational programs, learner skills, stuff like that. Um, you also have social intervention, whether it's access to outside services, or whether it's um, incarcerated individuals that have got out of the, um, or have um, stopped their gang involvement or have been released, they'll come back in and try to give intervention to teach um, the newer kids, listen, I got out of it. This is how I got out of it. This is what steps you can do to get out of it. And then of course, there's your suppression techniques, which is discipline, accountability, transfers, loss of programming, loss of jobs. These are all ways that we try to counter the gang activity that's occurring um, within the system. We're running out of time. What I'm going to do before closing, I'm going to ask you in 60 seconds to answer the question, how do we move forward to reduce physical violence in correctional facilities? And 60 seconds is absolutely not enough time, but do your best. We will appreciate it. I think it's this is a conversation that needs to be done again because we haven't even addressed sexual assault. And there are nuances to the details that we've discussed that, you know, we could expose even more information on. So if you could take 60 seconds and help me to close up, I would appreciate it. 
what I wanted to really say from a historical perspective, Faith, is that back in, in, in the day when I was on that job in the 80s, we pretty much had the same similar scenarios. Gang members, gang members, gang members. And this is a unique program that I want to share with the audience. In an effort to curtail violence inside the jail, specifically the Bronx House Detention, which is now closed and part of a near Yankee Stadium, what the warden of that did, he was a very innovative warden that I knew. He decided that we need to have more recreation activities for these inmates so they can burn off all of this stress and anger and loneliness. So what he did and got permission from the mayor of the city of New York was they constructed a boxing gym on the roof of the Bronx House of Detention. And I will only tell you that the rate of violence diminished tremendously because if those individuals who enjoyed boxing were allowed to box, and let's say they were a member of a gang and they messed up and got involved in the fight or disobeyed an officer's order, they were immediately transferred from the Bronx House of Detention, which is not being on Rikers Island, and that changed the whole atmosphere of that particular jail. I just wanted to inject that within my purview and let you know that there are some really good ideas out there. It's not just, the, you know, talking about gang, gang, gangs, but we need to figure out what can we do to, to stop these guys and ladies from engaging in activity. I believe in services, and one of the services, you know, as I said, could be boxing. It could be we can have services whereby every inmate that walks inside of our jail is assigned or asked what program would he or she like to learn. And if they don't know, help them learn what's available to you and what the advantages are. I think that's my 60 seconds. I don't want to disappoint Faith. <laughs> Thank you, Professor Dodson. Captain Perez, would you like to comment? Absolutely. So as we say, idle time is a devil's playground. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is important that um, in order to reduce physical violence, we must keep these young men and women occupied with positive reinforcement, sports and recreation, work activities, education, spiritual activities, whether uh, faith-based activities, family-oriented activities. It is a proven point that individuals that have ties with their families are least likely to engage in things of violence because they need that support mechanism. And of course, vocational. It is important that we give um, in these individuals, young men and women, something that they can achieve and get a sense of achievement once they start utilizing more positive reinforcement and they are less likely to start to revert back towards the um, violent aspect of the, of the prison setting. Great. Thank you. So to all our listeners, I want to say thank you for being here. And I think you can tell this is a conversation that is ongoing. In the meantime, I'd like to say that episode 10 is the next episode that we have. Its title is Unsolved and Solvable Crimes, Understanding the Criminal Mind. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for listening. For more information on future episodes, you can follow along at Facebook at Monroe College, Instagram at Monroe College, Twitter at Monroe College. Have a great week.